Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Adam Durfee. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thanks, Richard. I'm happy to be here. Adam's a pretty unique man with his career, with his job at BYU, with his journey um, as a member of our church, a return missionary, and EFY counselor. So we're going to talk a lot about that. But just give us an give our listeners an um, an overview of your academic credentials, even though you don't want to do that, Adam. Tell tell our listeners a little bit about your your academic background and what you're doing right now at BYU. Yeah, what the uh, what the listeners don't get to see here is before we actually hit the record button, we have a conversation, and in that conversation, I mentioned that my credentials weren't super important to me here, but uh, yeah, I, <laughs> we could talk about those. Um, I graduated from BYU about six years ago and I went to work at a startup agency that we grew from four people to about 30 people and a few million dollars in revenue. Um, I pulled out of that position uh, just a couple years ago to go to uh, BYU and start teaching there. And that was based a lot on what I'd managed to accomplish in that time. Um, I was... Um, asked to be on the Forbes, or the Forbes Council of Experts in Communications. I was actually the youngest member of the Forbes Council uh, in 2016 when they asked me to be part of that. Um, over the course of the past couple of years, I have uh, received a lot of industry awards. Um, two years ago, I was named a rising star in, uh, in national digital marketing, and then this year became the uh, social media innovator of the year by PR news and That's social media cool. today. So I've, yeah, done, accomplished a few things anyway. How did you go from this growing digital agency that was very successful to then becoming a faculty member at BYU? That's a story my students ask all the time. I've sort of figured it out by now. It took some reconstruction in my <laughs> mind. Uh, I think there was probably a divine hand in that a little bit. I, I was working at this growing agency. I loved it. I loved the fast-paced agency world. Um, but in that process, I had a lot of my professors who would send students my way a lot. They'd say, we have this alumni, Adam. He runs this agency. He's hiring people all the time. Why don't you see if you can get a job from him? And as these students would come and interview, I always feel so bad. But they didn't have the skills they needed to work in my field. And they just couldn't cut it in that position. And so after dealing with that for, for a few years... Um, I had decided to, to part with ways with my agency and to move on to a different part of my career. And some of the professors I'd worked with at BYU reached out to me at that time and tried to convince me to come on board. And initially I had said no, then they showed me the salary and I definitely said no. And I was pretty certain I was headed uh, out of state. And then, um, I don't know, I was teaching a class. The true story is I was teaching a class one night at BYU and I'd been asked to, to guest lecture. And it was after hours at 6 or 6.30. All the professors have been home for hours. And the director of the school knocked on my classroom door and said, Adam, will you come out and talk to us for a second? I said, yeah, no problem. So I stepped out. And he had an offer letter in his hand. And he said, hey, I need you to sign this real quick or we're going to have to go with somebody else for this, this position here teaching at BYU. And I just went ahead and signed it on the spot. And wow. then went back in and started my lecture again. Then I stopped and looked at this group of 20 students I didn't really know at all. And I said, guys, can I, can I be real with you for a second? I said, I... I think I have to quit my job tomorrow. <laughs> That's crazy. And then it kind of, yeah, it kind oh. of rolled from there. And so I wasn't exactly sure what drove me to to that job. Exactly the pressers found me when they did. But it ultimately came from this desire to teach students to do this thing that 
I knew how to do that wasn't being taught at the time. And I can honestly say, um, spiritually, academically, professionally, um, all every facet of my life, this has been a hundred percent the correct decision to spend the last little while working with BYU. What school are you in, Adam? And what do you teach? Uh, I teach digital marketing and digital advertising at the School of Communications on the Provo campus. Okay. I've got a son in the ad lab. I don't know if that's part of the School of Communications or a different part or... Yeah. So we're the sister lab to the ad lab. Okay. So students are focused on just traditional creative production only. They are in the ad lab space there where they're yeah. creating some of the most amazing things that most people have ever seen. Um, and then students who are interested more in the digital side of things. So how those advertisements interact on uh, Instagram or on Snapchat or on Google, uh, those students are working with me um, on some cool clients as well. Now our listeners just want to ask you a bunch of digital questions. Yeah, right. That's that's what I figured. <laughs> we should. So I want to just add him, even though that's probably a little out of Adam's comfort zone, because I think he tries to fly below the radar, to just share a little bit about that, because it puts Adam in a really unique space. At age 30, being at faculty as BYU is, is pretty unique. And so we're going to talk about Adam and his worldview with LGBTQ, with women issues, with race issues as a faithful member of the church and how he is kind of in two worlds sometimes. I'm 58, so I'm kind of in a world that Adam may be in at times with just older professional people and rubbing shoulders. Not that I'm in the same circles Adam is, but I'm the age of the people he's rubbing shoulders with. And just your connection to the students at BYU and some of their some of their their worldview on LGBTQ, on gender, on race and and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is I thought you could just be a great spokesperson for, you know, people your age and people younger and just what you're saying and how you're helpful. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of a foundation. We're going to talk about LGBTQ women issues, race issues, and just how to navigate this space as faithful members of the church. Adam offered the prayer and he said in his prayer, he said, I just pray that one person will be helped by this podcast. And I share Adam's prayer that just one of you out there will leave this podcast from what Adam shares and just have a little more hope, a little more healing, a little more perspective on the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it applies to the people of our faith that have the hardest road. They're the most on the margins. And I think Adam has some really good insights. Um, you're married. You've been married. And tell us just a little bit about your personal life, where you grew up and your personal situation. So I grew up in Sandpoint, Idaho. Um, if you haven't heard about it, it's fine. No one listening to this podcast has. Uh, it's about eight hours north of any city people can think of in Idaho. So it's right Corvallis? up on the... <laughs> it's not... That's well, in Coeur d'Alene. Coeur d'Alene. An hour north of Coeur d'Alene. Okay. But the reality is there's like 10 people in the world who know where Coeur d'Alene is. And the fact that two of them are I in don't. this... <laughs> I don't. I two of them are in this room. That's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, that's, that's where I grew up. Uh, the actual city there has 5,000 people. Uh, there's a church membership base of maybe 60 members or so. People often have this idea that Idaho is filled with um, with members of the church, and that's only true typically for for Southern Idaho. Interesting. So that's that's where I grew up, and um, outside of that, I I grew up in a family. I've got five siblings, um, and and was the first in the family to go to BYU, which I think was kind of a, a surprise. I came to BYU the first time. Uh, firstly, was shocked by the number of people who were there. I realized that 
my entire city, the actual place I grew up was 10 houses and that entire population could fit inside my dorm building. And then realizing that the population of my city, which is the 5,000 Sandpoint could fit inside the Lullabird Stadium like 12 times was a huge shock to me. Provo was a metropolis. But um, as, I, as I made that move down here, kind of expanded my horizons a little bit. I got to meet a lot of people. That was a fun experience in my life. And then went to serve a mission. Uh, I served officially in the Australia Melbourne West mission, which I don't think exists any longer. It's been combined with a couple others there in Australia, but I was located on the island of Tasmania Wow! for the, the bulk of my mission, um, which most people couldn't find on a map, which is perfect upbringing for me because they can't find my hometown either. What's the... This is a geograph a geography question. What's the comparable latitude in the northern hemisphere for Tasmania? Did um, I explain the you know? Is yeah, it, Iceland. It, yeah, Iceland. Iceland. It's way far north. So that gives me pers- this is way down there. Correct. Tasmania has penguins. Okay, so this is a cold mission. Yeah. So in the summertime, it gets sort of hot. It's temperate rainforest, but it snows in the winter, and uh, it can get it can get fairly frigid. And they've got penguins who make their way there because. If you go south, the next thing you hit is Antarctica. Antarctica. Yeah. And we visited beforehand. I think one of the first things we want to talk about is LGBTQ. Tell us a little bit about your connection to that space and why you, um, and just what you're doing in that space. So I was born in the 1980s, which separates me maybe just a little bit from uh, from some of the guests, especially in that YSA uh, 20s range. And as a child of the 80s, I will tell you that most people, especially in the in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, probably weren't exposed into most of the LGBTQ community until uh, probably a little bit later in their lives. Um, I had maybe a unique experience amongst people, especially from small-town Idaho, as uh, the only other Latter-day Saint male my age in my hometown growing up and my absolute best friend in the world um, identified as gay from a fairly young age. And so I think for me, my worldview... I got experience in that community probably earlier than than most, especially in my circles. But it's always been sensitive to me. And maybe it's because I grew up with knowing that that my best friend um, was part of this community and was just as human and just as normal and had just as many weaknesses and strengths and great things about him as, as any other human that it was sort of an interesting concept when you get to this point of where we have now where we start to divide a little bit. And we're starting to identify people by sexual orientation when I think for me in that space, it's just always been my friend. It's always been this human. It's always been this person that I trusted and shared my vulnerabilities and my secrets with and and he with me. And so this humanized aspect for me of people in this community is something that I I, I hope can be shared uh, by by more people. Talk about... um... What you do, so you're obviously teaching, I'm going to call it digital marketing, or I'm not sure I'm using all the right vocabulary. That's the best way to refer to it, yeah. And um, what do you do as a professor to create safety with your students so that they can open up to you about sort of LGBTQ or women or race or just some of the, uh, the topics that are topical for BYU students? So it's a really interesting dynamic at BYU because while we believe in in acceptance of everybody and we want this mission to be this safe place, I think there there gets to be a struggle sometimes amongst our minorities because they look around them and they see predominantly white um, and a predominantly patriarchal and predominantly straight uh, community. And I think that that 
worries them uh, a little bit or makes, I think, some of our some of my favorite students and my best friends on that campus a little bit nervous about who they are or what their future goals or plans might be or their lifestyles. And so for me, it's really important as early as possible in my classes. We're talking from initial introductions and orientations on day one to let all of them know that their race or gender or sexual orientation or even intelligence level is not really of any interest to me as a standalone concept that these are my students, everybody in that room, regardless of their background or uh, minority status or majority status, are going to be asked to do the same assignments, perform at the same levels, and that we're going to bond as a class and accomplish something together. I have the unique opportunity at the university, uh, part of how I structured this job, to have all of my classes be client-focused. So we find real clients and we do real work and deliver for these clients. And so these are stressful situations. Students are told they have to perform like professionals and they pull late nights and work long days and work on their weekends very often. And, and that fits with your goal preparing for companies like you were looking to hire. Exactly, exactly. But what that does is it, I, I hope we establish as early as possible that my interest is in turning these students into professionals and that their backgrounds are not as important to me as what they're going to be, as who they're going to turn into and the work they're going to accomplish. And if we can get that established as early as possible and the students can look around the room and recognize there are people there of all different uh, genders and ethnicities and sexual orientations, that collectively they can feel safe and know that my door is open. I intentionally leave my office door open at all times that I'm in hours. I tell the students that reaching me on social media is not only um, is not only acceptable, but encouraged that if they have struggles, whether it be on an assignment or on a personal issue, they're welcome to reach out to me. And that my dedication to this job is them. I, if I'm not working with students and creating and creating something of value for them, I need to go back into my real industry and just go back to um, to making a lot more money because it, being there for students is the reason I took this job. Does the university encourage you to take on this added role, professors, um, faculty, or is this or discourages or just leaves that up to every professor? For the most part, it's left up to the professors. Um, I receive nothing but support from my colleagues for um, for the choices that I make and the and the life that are the policies that I that I put into place working with our students. But for the most part, that's just, it's based on professor's comfort level. Um, we're professional enough at BYU to focus on what our product is, right? Our, our goal is to create professionals of tomorrow and spiritual leaders of tomorrow. And if we can weave that professionalism, that spirituality into a classroom, then, then we're encouraged to do that. If I'm a gay closeted student in your class, Adam, I don't know if they call you Adam or Professor Durfee. Adam, or, uh, <laughs> Professor Durfee is way older than anything I deserve. Okay, I'm, I'm going to keep calling you Adam then. <laughs> if I'm a gay closeted, you know, student in your class, what am I hearing from you if I don't know you that creates, because I want to ask this question to help others do what you're doing. What are you saying that creates a feeling to me that I could actually talk to you as a gay closeted kid and you would be a safe person for me? I think the most important thing for me, um, I, I would love to start at the beginning of the class and say, hey, if you are closeted, come talk to me. If you are feeling like a racial minority, come talk to me. If you're feeling like a victim of the patriarchy, come talk to me. I feel like a lot of times people feel that that might feel like a like virtue signaling or that might feel like just something that we say. And so for me, it's actually far more important to try and give examples right away. 
So as I speak to students on the first day, what I tell them right away is, hey guys, you're all here because you deserve to be here. When you apply to work in my class, my classrooms are application only. And when you get accepted here, I don't look at your name or your background or your major or anything. You get in on merit alone. And I said, so if you felt like you didn't deserve to be here, you're wrong. Everybody in this in this classroom does. And then I'll I'll say things out loud like, in this classroom, we don't care about where you've come from. We don't care about um, the your sexual orientation or your race in this space we care about the work that you can produce and i'll be here every step of the way to help you with that work and i sincerely believe and maybe we should have my students on here to ratify that maybe on twitter they'll see this and they'll, they'll validate or not but i believe it's that that helps them feel comfortable that i firstly acknowledge probably their specific issue in word but then tell them as we go through this process of working together that i will be there side by side they're not getting anybody commanding from some ivory tower or from behind a desk, but I'll be sitting there teaching them, working with them, checking their work. Um, if they're working a late night, I'll be working the late night. If they're working a weekend, I'll be there on the weekend. And I think as students recognize that and recognize my my goal of pushing to build them, I think that's ultimately what builds it. I don't think opening a door for someone to feel comfortable, I, I don't think it's so much opening the door and saying, come on in so much as it is building respect in the first place and making students feel like you're a comfortable or a safe person. And I think once they've established that, that's when they're willing to to come in and say the conversation that we've had a couple of times, hey, Adam, can I talk to you about something? I like that. I like what you said. You didn't necessarily, you just created a safe environment without sort of what you described at first you didn't do. That's very helpful. How do you use social media um, as a professor at BYU, to cr also create a feeling that students could talk to you about anything? Or do you intentionally do that? I, d I don't know. I just know you're on Twitter, and I'm connected with you on Twitter. I am, yeah. So my, my online brand is, uh, is specially curated. Um, as a digital marketing professional, uh, I speak at conferences all over the country uh, pretty regularly. I've traveled the world, in fact, with huge organizations. So I, I have a carefully curated online brand, but the most so. in, and the most important part for me is being human on that brand. So I'll take a stand there and share my support for, um, for somebody in the LGBTQ community, or I'll take a stand there on, um, helping break the glass ceiling for, um, for females across the world in the workplace, but also, uh, make my commentary on digital marketing politics or, um, or other issues facing my profession. That's fairly normal for me. But I think a lot of it online is that students can see that I do stand for something, but also that I'm incredibly human. And I think that's that's ultimately really important. I think that there's people who are incredibly outspoken online about some issues one way or the other. And I almost wonder sometimes if that outspokenness can be intimidating for people to say, okay, if I go talk to so-and-so about this, what's that going to turn into? Um, where I hope with me, they recognize that that my support of of them across any of the spectrums is incredibly stable, incredibly mature, and incredibly professional. And that for me, it's not a virtue signal online, but support of who these people are and the communities they're from is just simply part of of who I am. And that should be spun into into who I am on social media as well as in real life. That's very fascinating to me. You use the word curated, I think, 
And my interpretation of that is there's strategy and thoughtfulness behind what you're doing on your online presence, which is your professional expertise. And there's a lot of thought there, but it, there's a lot of thought to create a feeling of safety and a vulnerability and of being real that I would think if I'm one of your students finding you on social media, it gives me a feeling for who you are, um, that maybe you can't always communicate just in a classroom situation. Which of the social media platforms are the most helpful for you to connect with BYU students? So my preferred platform is Twitter across the board. Um, however, the majority of, of students I hear from is on Instagram. I don't know if that's because that's the preferred platform for most of them or because it's easier to find me there. Uh, it's tough to say, but um, when when I hear from students that I've never met, which I weirdly has happened multiple times, um, that will usually come through Instagram. I'll get a direct message request from a student I've never met and they'll reach out and say, thank you, my brother is so-and-so or my sister is so-and-so or my friend took your class or um, I had a student in my office uh, a while back who was going through some really... Um, personal struggles and needed someone to talk to and had some issues with parents and leaders and didn't think they could talk to them about that and felt comfortable talking to me. Cool. And then um, friends in that student's group reached out to me on Instagram That's cool. and thanked me for that opportunity. And I'll say that it's moments like that where I know that making this career change in my life was 100% the correct concept and being open and available on social media, even though sometimes that comes with criticisms, uh, is the right decision because it allows people to to reach out as well and find me to be someone who's willing to help. Tell our listeners how to find you on Twitter and Instagram. So I'm just at Adam Durfee, Adam and then Durfee, D-U-R-F-E-E. -E. Uh, you can find me on any social media platform of that same name, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Vero, anywhere you find them. I already know the last one. <laughs> That's different than Venmo. <laughs> it is, it is. But if you want to find me on Venmo, it's the same thing. <laughs> Always happy to accept. <laughs> That's funny, Adam. Talk more about LGBTQ students at BYU as you've met with them. If if you were just, and I know you can't, every story is different, so it's hard. I know you'd be nervous about becoming a spokesperson for every LGBTQ student at BYU, but for our listeners that may not know that road for BYU students that are gay, lesbian, trans, can you give our listeners just some general themes you're hearing from them? Uh, certainly. And you're exactly correct. I don't want to pin myself as any sort of spokesperson. I mean, you've had some amazing people on this podcast before who, who could speak to that community far better than I could because I'm, I'm not a member of that community. I'm, I'm identify as straight, but I'm with those students. Um, I've spoken with them. I've had personal conversations with them. And I think that one of the most important things that people don't realize is is college is stressful. That part we get. Students have student jobs and dating lives are stressful and finances are hard and classes are hard and your future is difficult. And then if you identify as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, what you find next is an added level of stress on your life. That in addition to trying to decide what job you're going to have, you're now deciding, um, am I going to come out to my parents or my friends or my future employers as to who I am. And is there going to be backlash against that? When some students are struggling with dating, oh, do I like this person? Do I not? Should we get married? How's this going to work? There's people out there who are struggling to say, should I even date? Or should I change my entire uh, worldview? Or how does this comply with my religion? Other people are going to church to find peace. They're going to the temple to find peace on the stressful things going on in their lives. And some of our LGBTQ students 
are going to church and finding that just building their anxiety. And so I think that one of the most important things we have to have is at least enough sympathy to recognize that these students are often dealing with one additional burden that some of our other students just don't have to face. That's very thoughtful. Why would church potentially cause increased stress for an LGBTQ person? I think that we have this idea that if you don't fit the exact mold of someone that we we believe should be sitting in a bench at church every Sunday, that that can cause some stress to your mind. And I think these students go there and sometimes feel like, am I accepted here? If I told everybody that I was gay, would they, uh, would they accept me? Would they run me out of here? Would I be looked at differently? How will that affect my performance? Will the bishop want to talk to me? Will that stress me out? And I just think it's the internal questions that causes that problem. I talk to most people who struggle with anxiety, and it's far less things happening around them and far more happen- things happening inside of them. It's this thought process, this questioning, this what if, what if, what if game. And I think a lot of our LGBTQ friends face so much more of that than some of us do. That's very th- Any other thoughts you just like to bring forth to our listeners in this topic? I had a, a good conversation on the way uh, to actually record this with my best friend, who I mentioned before identifies as gay himself. And he actually uh, left the church and we spoke about that. And I just, I, I've heard the story multiple times before, but asked him to give me a refresher and, and talk about um, what that experience was like and, and what advice he would give or what he would have me share with people. And he asked me if I would please plead with the listeners of this podcast to remember that these are human beings, that we like to refer to them, right? Use words like that. This is a community. It's those people. But in reality, they're human beings. They're your neighbors, they're your classmates, they're your roommates, they're your sons, your daughters, your cousins, your friends, your friends of your friends. It's We're talking about, about actual people who have actual goals, actual desires, actual capabilities, who are so much more than just their sexual orientation. In a BYU context, these are aspiring professionals. These are people who are going to run companies and uh, found NGOs and uh, create incredible scientific discoveries and teach children and who knows what else. And we can't be defining any of these people by their sexual orientation or what they choose to do uh, in their personal life so much as we should be defining them by the output of, of their character and who they really are. I really like that. I'm getting tenderhearted as you're talking about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Talk about, is your relationship with your friend that left the church changed? Did it change when he left the church? I sincerely, sincerely hope not. Um, I've known that he's been gay for years. Um, he came out to me before he came out to the general public. Um, we it's wrote an each incredible other. honor Thank you. to have someone come out. I actually thanked him because that was, uh, it was powerful to me to know that that's, that's the level of friendship that he saw that at. But we wrote letters to each other on our missions. Uh, he's a returned missionary as well. And I hope that our friendship stems way beyond that. That just like you aren't, you shouldn't be categorized by just your sexual orientation, you also shouldn't be categorized by just your level of church activity or, or faith. Um, I think that that our friendship goes a lot beyond that. And sometimes as you go through these struggles, I think you need friends more than ever before. And I think for me, that's true as well. I haven't struggled with, um, with my sexual orientation. I've, as a straight person, I've often been accepted by, by people around me, 
but I go through other struggles. And I think that it's important to know that he is a good friend and a support system for me in struggles that I go through. And I can be the same for him. And regardless of the individual circumstances that we face, we're there. And I think with that level of relationship, then it then doesn't have to change. It's not my job to bring him back into the church. It's not my job to make him straight, but the same way it's not his job to bring me away from the church or to get me to face a different sexual orientation. I mean, it's it, friends are, are something that we all need and a true friend. It doesn't, little things like that just don't affect relationships. How was your life better off by having this, this friend in your life? I would love to say it makes me more empathetic. Um, unfortunately, it's probably not a good word as I've never been through the exact struggles that he's been through, but I'll say it makes me more sympathetic. Um, when I've got a student who's struggling with something, um, it's actually easy to text my friend and ask him what that situation like, what advice would you have liked to hear? He's my age. So he's been through the college thing. He's landed a job. He's in a, he's in a happy relationship with, um, with another man now. And it's, it's fun to be able to carry his insights into people I'm talking to now and understanding that my life is enriched by having a personal connection. We can all do something by listening, right? We can all listen, learn, and love to people around us. But if you have the chance to build a true, deep, binding friendship with somebody, I think we can learn a lot about their lives, whether it's in um, this, whether it's in the sphere of, of being a racial minority or um, whether it's being a woman in a world where uh, maybe your options are told they're going to be limited or whether it's somebody of a different sexual orientation than the majority populace. I love your answers to that, Adam. I don't have a lot of experience with the, with the podcast. Sometimes we'll have the straight friend come of the gay guy. We've done a few of those and or the straight woman of the female who's gay. And sometimes those same gender friendships are the most helpful if the straight guy doesn't pull away from the gay guy or the straight woman doesn't pull away from the gay woman. And, and sometimes those are, can be the most helpful relationships. I don't have any scientific data on that. I think all relationships are probably helpful, but those could be the ones that a straight guy can just sort of say, that's, I, that's an, I can't do that. And so I pull away. And I think I did that with the guys in high school that I knew were gay. I just was not comfortable with my own sexual orientation or who I was. I just didn't, have the tools perhaps to just do what you did and what our younger people are able to do is just say, you know, this doesn't change. This isn't, this is just my friend. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if, if you had a friend who had a widow's peak or who was left-handed or who had different colored hair than you, you wouldn't think twice about keeping them in your friend circle. But for whatever reason, we just decided arbitrarily that sexual orientation, that is a defining characteristic not the not the size of your hands or um, or your weight, but your sexual orientation that 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 is different. And I I feel like that's a crime. I feel like that's that's a true shame that that we do that because these are people who are the same as any other people. I mean, I have just as many differences um, from the majority population as anybody else. I mean, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, I would be a minority. As a kid from small town Idaho, I would be a minority. Um, it, there's just so many things that make us all, uh, all make us all unique and make us all different. And sometimes give us an us against the world mentality that we don't need to gang up on anybody else going through struggles and just need to recognize that the things that make them different than the normal populace are no different than things that make us different. 
Why is doing what you're doing for LGBTQ people, you feel consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's a leading question, Adam. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's actually one of my favorites, though, because I believe that um, that being a friend of or an ally of the LGBTQ community is actually directly in line with our faith. And I could almost be as prideful to say makes me um, makes me more fulfilled as a member of the church because when Christ was on earth, he specifically said there are two great commandments, right? Love God and love thy neighbor. And he said everything else, the laws, the principles, everything we're doing are based around these two ideas. And our neighbors would absolutely include the LGBTQ community. These are not people who are exempted from the status of neighbor. As a Christian believer, my goal is to love people and accept people, just like Christ did. I, I've never found anywhere in the scriptures where Christ agreed to speak to anybody, but as long as they were straight. It's just this, it's this ridiculous concept. And so I think that that loving and accepting people, regardless of any status in their lives, makes me a better Christian believer and honestly brings me closer to my heavenly father that I know he loves all of his children equally. And that if I can try to channel that and love all of my neighbors and people around equally, that I'm doing what my goal ultimately here is, which is to become more like the God that I believe in. Love that answer. Talk, we talked a little bit about before we started, um, sort of you're in both worlds a little bit. Um, you're in a professional circle that's older than you, I assume, even though you your profession probably skews younger and you're connected with uh, millennials. I assume, I can't even remember what the cutoff is for millennials. If you're it's, gener it's Generation Z now, Gen and Z. If I'm 21, 22, 23, what am I? Yeah, you're Gen Z. Okay, so you're connected with Gen Z. Yeah. Are you a millennial? I'm a millennial. Okay. I'm a millennial. Um, I'm something way different <laughs> than all of that, but we won't go there. Um, I don't think I'm the silent boomer, though. You're whatever my dad is. Right? There you go. Yeah. But talk about sometimes these two groups are talking to each other, but they're not listening to each other, or just the tension. I don't know if tension's the right word, but just sometimes the older group on, and the younger group on this issue, and sometimes you see that because you're in both groups. I actually appreciate uh, you bringing that up because it's something that, that if anything causes me uh, some sadness, it's probably exactly that. I have a chance to witness... Um, on a pretty regular basis, especially when you see online, but we have this attitude of of our friends in the LGBTQ community will regularly speak about how they're not being accepted and loved, and they're demanding that this that this generation, your peers, and some of the ones that that I work with, accept them for who they are and change their outlook. And then at the same time, we have these groups of people who are looking down the LGBTQ community and saying, well, why don't you change who you are? And why don't you change your outlook on things and and make an adjustment that's in our favor? And both these groups are just yelling back and forth for the other group to change. And both groups think it's impossible or unfair that they be the one that changed. And I look at this and just think, you guys are facing the same struggles. You One group, you can't understand why someone won't change their behavior, their attitude, and the other group says the same. And I think at some point we have to realize that sometimes people are built the way they are. If you've been believing from the time that you were very young that being a member of the LGBTQ community was a choice, then making an adjustment in thinking 50 or 60 years later is probably not an incredibly fair thing to do. But on the flip side, if you are a member of that community looking down at somebody in the LGBTQ space and saying, well, you should change too, 
it, that's also not fair to have somebody change the way they are as a human. And I think if we start to just have some acceptance and love and just recognize that we are born the way we're born and we're raised with the sets of beliefs and ideas and standards that we are we're raised in and replace a lot of that with just acceptance and love, we can change a lot of the rhetoric that I see. I It disheartens me a lot to see reports of my friends and students who will tell me about the horrible things they've been said or told um, about being a member of that community. But on the flip side, I don't like watching those same people fire back at their other generation, um, talk badly about those people, about their parents, about church leaders, or about um, the church in and of itself. I just feel like if we're trying to preach love, let's preach love on both sides. Let's stop, uh, let's stop hating on church leaders and policymakers. And at the same time, let's start hating or stop hating on um, the members of this community who are trying their hardest and going through hard times in their lives as well. That's really thoughtful. And I think if you're, if I, you kind of answered the question in my mind is what principles would you teach to bring this, these two groups together? And I think it was listening and love and understanding and being open to learn versus sort of t attacking the two different groups. Hashtag love wins. Hashtag right? love wins. That's the whole concept. And let's let's spread that in every way. Uh, let, let's just let love be the rhetoric. Um, let's stop accusing people of, of this or that. And let's stop hating on people for anything they believe. If, even if you believe it's dogmatic or immature or um, young or whatever, just let it, let there be a little bit of love in this process. And I think we can change a lot of the outlook and a lot of the conversation that we hear. Anything else you'd like, if you had BY, gay BYU students, LGBTQ BYU students listening, or anybody that's sort of closet in that age, anything you just say to them? That my door is open. My office is there. I've got comfy leather chairs. You're welcome to come and sit and come and talk to me because we do live in a weird world of change. And I understand that college is hard. I understand that um, being a member of a community that maybe you don't feel accepted as a part of makes college harder, but I'm a teacher at BYU. My job is to make my students' lives better. I'm supposed to make things easier and find that person who's there for you and then press on and just don't, don't spread hate on, on either side. And that goes to anybody, anybody listening to this, just go with love. I've been impressed with, um, a number of BYU professors and that are doing, they're trying to do what you do and are very sensitive to BYU students that have an added, you know, sort of difficult road. And so I've, I graduated, I went to the MBA school at BYU, but never really connected sort of, I just stayed in that Tanner building the whole time. And I never really got a feel for BYU because I'm an undergrad U of U student. And um, since I've connected with LGBTQ and have on Twitter with a lot of um, BYU Students, I've just felt um, a lot of really wonderful professors trying to do, and faculty and staff trying to do the right thing, and and really looking hard at this issue. and And uh, it's made me it's made there's work to do, but I've been really grateful for some of the things I've seen, and people like you. Uh, talk about women in your class and their career goals and some of the things that here we, here we are. Now it's two men talking about women. This is, you know, we all recognize that this would be better if women were here, but bear with us <laughs> because you, you hear their stories and they talk to you. So I think you're fair. You can really bring insight into professional women that are coming out of BYU and some of the cultural things that are difficult for them. 
you know, it is maybe sort of weird at face value that we have two white men in here (laughs) talking about, uh, talking about, uh, women's issues. But at the same time, I think one could argue that men are probably to blame for this whole glass ceiling concept anyway. Good. And so if there is somebody who's ready to make a change in the world of women's treatment and, um, and women in the professional world, maybe it ought to be men who, uh, who look and, and try to help push that change. So I think internally, I don't find as much of an issue with, with a discussion like this. Um, I think of anything too, it, it's great to talk about LGBTQ issues. Uh, it's great to talk about, um, racial sensitivities and anything else. But I will say that of anything we talk about, anything I feel passionate about, uh, this would be it. I could have a team of students here behind me who would tell you that I've soapboxed on the issue more than once. I am in a unique position where I get to meet some of the absolute most talented young women that this world may have produced. They they show up uh, in my classroom, they apply, and they become part of an incredible experience. I have four, I call them account executives, but four students who are in charge um, in my space. They each have teams of eight students who work for them. They answer to that. These students deal with client phone calls from Fortune 500 companies, and they manage, last year they managed half a million dollars in, in spend, and all four of these students are female for me. And that's not because of any sort of affirmative action concept. It's because these are the four students who get it, they deserve it, and they're going places. And I have had so many other wonderful, wonderful young ladies in this position that have proved they could go anywhere in this world with talent. But so many of them have spoken to me and shared with me their own concerns um, about the limits they feel in their lives, coming from parents who believe they should take a backseat to their husbands or their husband's education or their jobs, or they feel pressure from, from other external sources that maybe they they won't be good enough or even from employers that they feel like don't give them fair treatment because maybe they're going to quit or they can't handle it or whatever. And it that hurts me so much inside because I deal with these students and know how incredibly talented they are. I was uh, I was sharing a story with you before we got recording here that's probably relevant now too of a of a young lady who's immensely capable and who received an internship this summer. Um, out of 700 applicants, she was selected wow. and every bit deserving. From BYU, she got the job and her husband's an, an awesome guy and he jumped right along and they relocated across the country for this incredible experience. And she reached out to me and said, Adam, you won't believe it. She's on the first day of church we attended and everyone says, oh, young people in the ward, what are you here for? And they said, oh, we're here for an internship. And she said, everyone would turn to her husband and say, oh, what do you do? Wow. What's your internship? And she felt so devalued at that point because she's the one with the internship. She's the one with a supportive husband who is happy to relocate in pursuit of this great young lady's job and eventually her career. And for me, that story is not isolated and that's why that hurts. It hurts that we can't accept sometimes the, the great accomplishments of these young women in our lives and also the great professionals that they could be. I love that story and it's uh, it's been a blind spot for me. I've had to listen to women, especially when I was a singles word bishop, and understand more of their journey. And really, it's a blind spot for me. I just didn't see it. Um, and I don't know if I completely see it. 
Um, but I have to hear stories like this, and then I have to reflect internally because that's a real-life example of something that could happen pretty easily for most men and women um, on the assumption of why they were there for that internship. I, um, If my wife were here, she would speak to this more than about anybody on the planet. Uh, she's a She's a working woman as well. And she'll tell me all the time how much of a boys club management is. And she's a marketing director with a company and how much of a man's world, the business world is and how often she feels like she has to work so hard to get accepted. And that hurts me because I know when I come present ideas in the, in the circles that I'm in, they get accepted so easily. And I know probably like you, that most women in our lives are probably our better halves anyway. And it's crazy to me to think that this woman that, that I know personally to be so talented has to work this hard at it. Um, it, it's just such an interesting experience. Um, I know that in our own lives, I can speak to this fairly personally. My wife opted not to change her name. We got married a little bit later in life. That's I was 29. Cool. She was 28. She was a marketing director. Um, I, uh, I had a lot of accomplishments and things to my name as well. And when she opted not to change her last name, the amount of pressure that we felt from our families and our parents and the people around us is incredible. I had people and it, it, real story. I honestly had people who would come and one in particular who asked, um, does she love you that much? And we're legitimately wow. questioning. Yeah. I, sorry, I tried to speak, um, stable here, but they were questioning the value and validity of our relationship over something as simple as, as her not wanting to give the last name that for her was attached to credentials and licensing and jobs at that point. And it's so insane to me that, that we take that characteristic of somebody and we value it that way. Whereas we instantly don't value all the reasons that she didn't change it, that maybe there were licenses and certificates and awards and things attached to her name, her name, the identity that she had built. Yeah. I get in college, maybe things are different. You have a lot attached to it and maybe, you know, do your thing, but you get to a point in your life where you've accomplished things and your name is attached to a lot of, a lot of stuff. And the fact that she wanted to keep, didn't bother me at all. I supported that decision. But the fact that people would look at her and think that she's less of a woman and that our relationship is less of a relationship because something as simple as a woman not being willing to give up 28 years of her own identity is really, really disheartening. Does LDS Tools allow you to have different... How does that work in the membership record? So her name and our membership records were automatically changed uh, the day we got married, and she had to go and request a name change through uh, the ward and state clerks to get that change back to the name that she that she goes by and she identifies with. Um, we've had people come to our house and we introduce ourselves, um, and they'll look at us and instantly think that, oh, you like living together or what's your situation? And it's, it's just so interesting that we live in this world where we expect so much of these women in our lives for them to do, but then also do so little to help push them to be better or accept them to be anything other than kind of this vision that our traditional views have put on them. One of the things that I started to pick up as a YSA bishop as I listened more was try to realize that women self-worth shouldn't be tied into getting married and having children. Never. That, that is a wonderful thing, but I just felt an impression to help the women in our YSA ward felt complete now as an unmarried woman 
and not sort of become complete when some of these things that may be outside of their control happened. Um, we didn't make marriage a big focus of our YSA ward for some reason. And maybe it's because I got married at 29 and I married a 28-year-old and I felt some of the tension. They did Literally have YSA, my story. They did have YSA wards back in my day, believe it or not, when I was 1982 and came home from my mission. And I think that I picked up a little bit of that and thought we wanted to make the YSA wards about coming into Christ and not about getting married. And I remember rubbing shoulders sometimes with other YSA bishops, and they'd sort of talk about the number of marriages their ward created. And I wondered, I, I just never quite, I mean, I wondered if we were missing something there. But the more I sort of step away, I think that was the right approach. Yeah, and I I can't feel or, or feel in the position to to make comment on the validity or non-validity of that. I've never been a YSA bishop. I mean, I, I maxed out my time in YSA wards so I can speak to being a member of those wards. But I will say that it it's sad to me that we take people who are single and tell them you can't be complete until you're not single and then somehow be surprised when these people leave the church or, or step away from the teachings of the gospel. When we literally told them that it was too hard to do it alone, now they're alone and it's not working. So it's sort of a weird idea when I feel like we should be able to take this ward concept, this YSA concept and say, hey, let's teach you how to find Christ all on your own. And then if you choose to find a life companion, that's wonderful. And I don't, and please don't get me wrong here. And I, I hope this part makes it into our final cut, but I don't want anybody to think that I'm devaluing marriage or the family. Same. Um, it's incredibly important. But I do believe that we put more pressure on women to get married than we do men. And that's the part I find is unfair. Um, I believe the role of the father and the husband is just as important and equal as the role of wife and mother. So therefore, they should have equal pressure on men to become fathers and husbands and women to become wives and mothers. It's the unequal pressure that, uh, that, that I, take, I take issue with there. Define the term patriarchal or patriarchal. You know, that's a term that I've grown up my whole life with, Adam, hearing. And now I'm hearing it with different definitions that sort of describe a culture that can be unhealthy for some people. Do you, do you want to take a stab at that one? Oh, boy. There's going to be a feminist somewhere who's not going to appreciate the answer. Um, I think, a for me, something that's patriarchal is just something that thinks about men first or lets men make most of our decisions. And in that way... I think we have we have issue in our community. Um, I had a chance uh, this past couple of weeks to spend some time in Japan with world religion and world leaders. There were we had three prime ministers there and um, cardinals and archbishops and an apostle and a few others. And the issue of women in religion and women in politics came up. And in that position, they all talked about their traditional patriarchal religions or patriarchal government styles. And one woman in particular um, made a lot of a lot of sense and touched me. Um, her name was uh, was Grassa Michelle. I hesitate. Sorry, the hesitation there is I hesitate to identify her as Nelson Mandela's uh, widow because I don't want her to be identified by her male counterpart. But that is probably what she's most famous for. It's very thoughtful. Um, but her excellency uh, Grassa Michelle, she talked about women in, in politics, women in leadership, and said how important it was. She said, because in a religion or in a world population, just 50% of the people that are in your congregation or in your community or in your constituency are female. And if 50% of the decision-making um, 
process doesn't involve females, then you're not truly getting the input from the people who are half affected by the decisions that you make. And for me, that's not even getting into priesthood leadership or anything else. That's completely aside. I, I, I think decision-making in a church environment goes way beyond any sort of priesthood calling or whatever. This just goes to simple uh, counsel. It goes to the concept of talking and deciding what decisions we make and how they affect people and understanding that if women are half affected by everything we do, then they should be half the input of everything that we get. And I think that's kind of where um, I see this concept of patriarchy stepping in is when we are overstepping that 50-50 boundary. And we're starting to say, well, men are going to be you know, 60-40 or 70-30. And I sincerely believe that's where we have room for change in there. And bringing women to the table is not um, something that should weaken our position at all or feel like we're even giving in or feeling like even being super progressive. It should feel very natural and it should feel very appropriate. I really like that. Uh, I'm reflecting on, I think it was some training I received as a singles word bishop and it was from Elder Boward. It was probably a video and he was talking about um, the power of counsel and talking about women and how important they are to the council. And I think he used the, he taught me a couple of things. Once he said, you know, if you're the priesthood leader, once you talk, once you state your opinion, sort of the end of the discussion, you've got to discipline yourself to not have, maybe not have an opinion, or if you have a feeling to make sure that you hear everybody else's opinion, because if you're the priesthood leader and you sort of state, you know, your opinion at the beginning of a discussion, it's going to, at least in our culture right now, I think mute everybody's comments. So it's sort of like, don't put your flag down first and then get everybody talking because that's probably not going to work. And then he talked about, you know, making sure women's voices are included. And he used an example like you're talking about an issue in ward council that's involving the elders quorum. But he says, ask the primary president what her thoughts are on an elders quorum issue. And I, I kind of remember sitting in a Sunday morning training meeting hearing, I thought, that's cool, because she really might have an insight into an issue that's just involving the elders quorum that's being discussed in a ward council or, or a, a man that's being discussed in ward council. So I loved a couple of that. I also loved, I listened to a Sharon Eubanks talk she gave at Fair Mormon a few years ago, and she talked about being in a council of six, I think um, being on the, I can't remember what her council was, if it was the Reese Society presidency or her job as the humanitarian director. And the other three men on the council were the presiding bishopric. And you may have heard this story, Adam, but you know, she was the only one that felt different than the other five and they did not make a decision. You know, the three men there could have said, well, we're going to go in this direction because it's five. But they they did not make a decision until Sister Eubank felt good about it. And I just thought that's the power of counsel. And credit to Sister Eubank, and I hope the, the culture we create in our councils is that the Sharon Eubanks um, of our— and they don't need to be as dynamic as Sharon Eubank. You, you know, you've got to find these great comments and women that may be tentative about speaking up because they're not used— to have their opinions valued. Any thoughts on all that, Adam? Let me just bat lead off here by saying that anybody out there looking for a female hero should be looking at Sister Eubank. Agreed. I had the opportunity to go to Buenos Aires with her wow. about a year and a half ago for a world summit on um, on solving hunger. 
and she was there and she and I had a long chat and a chance to talk. And I have rarely met a more well-spoken, thoughtful woman who uh, she could take charge of the room. She sat on a few panels where she was speaking to world leaders and presidents and prime ministers and felt as comfortable as if she were uh, teaching a classroom of students. I mean, it was an incredible concept to witness. So I can say that that she's a great role model. And that's just an aside from from the real question, or the, I guess the, the story that you told. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, I think my only commentary on that would be that I agree, that we don't need to have this idea that um, let's get women's opinion and men make the decisions because right. that's not what we're ultimately looking for. What we're looking at saying is we expect women to be equal partners in a marriage and equal partners in a family, and they should be equal partners in a council or equal partners in any decision-making process. And as I said before, that that shouldn't feel weird to us. It shouldn't feel novel. We shouldn't be able to sit here and talk about this experience Sister Eubank had as this one-off incredible example of something great. That should be something that we are incorporating into how all things work, whether that's in our business sphere, our religious sphere, or our community and political sphere. It's, it's the exact reason that, um, that I think we're talking about this in the first place, is that I see my own female students feeling like their voice at the table doesn't have the value that I sincerely believe it should have. And I don't know how. I mean, maybe somebody on Twitter will find me and give me some thoughts, and I'd love to hear it. But I would love to know what I can do to help empower these young ladies even more to take charge of their futures, uh, to be able to become the professionals that not only are they capable of, but I sincerely believe God has given them the gift to be. There's just no way that these women don't have so many divine and incredible abilities in this workplace and in this industry they're in to not use those and not use those to make the world better. I've seen some men, and maybe this is true of the internship you're talking about, where men are confident enough about their manhood. I don't know if that's good that they want to be with a really strong woman. And they, you know, I'm seeing this since my sons as they're dating, they are drawn to very strong women who are career-minded and are capable and bright. And all these things that you're talking about in your in your female students, and they're drawn, that's not threatening to them. That is actually the kind of marriage they want to have and the kind of um, partner they want to have for life and the kind of wife they want or mother is an example for not only their daughters but their sons, and I've I've seen that and I assume you've, you're seeing the same thing at times. I am, and you're in maybe you're in one of those marriages. I, I, exactly, I was <laughs> going to say I actually am in one of those. Um, I mean, I hesitate to say that women should be pursuing a career because it'll make them more attractive to men because I don't want to continue this narrative That's good. that That's very thoughtful. that women need to be looking to get married because they don't. Women should be able to stand on their own right. And if they choose a partner at some point in that process, good for them. No different than a man in that situation. But I I think there's so much validity and so much truth in what you just said that I know for me too, I I was and am attracted to these women that that put so much effort into becoming something great. Because to me I, I believe that I was put on this earth by, by a heavenly father to make an impact on something. Um, I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's too prideful to say, but I believe that the, the opportunities I've been blessed with at only 30, the positions I've been in, the people I've had a chance to meet and to work with, 
I believe I was here to make a difference and there's no way in the world I could make that difference if I felt like I had someone at home or a partnership in this, in this life that I had to take care of all the time or who was helpless. I need someone who's driven and wants to be on that journey and wants to change the world with me. And I know for a fact I'm not alone in that situation. And I guess I would encourage women who listen to this to know that that's a thing, <laughs> that pursuing their God-given abilities and becoming something incredible should benefit them, but can definitely benefit um, whatever organization they choose to put their their work to. I love that, and I'm seeing that in my own my wife and my own daughters, and and we have four sons that are home, and in our daughter-in-laws, and I'm seeing just wonderful, straight, wonderful, courageous women, and and I love that. Um, talk about. I have a question that comes to mind: the word feminist. And here I'm asking you to define that term. I'm doing all the things I shouldn't be doing, but you're going to make somebody on Twitter so <laughs> mad at me. But I think you're doing a good job. Um, that is a term that was, it's triggering for people my age. They hear that and they somehow, it's a triggering term. And why many your age in the genera generation Z, Gen Z, Gen Z take that on and look at it as actually very consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ and shouldn't be anything that's seen as rebellious or inconsistent with the church or the gospel. Do you want to just share some thoughts on that term? Uh, certainly. Um, if you're on Twitter and you're listening to this, um, please don't at me. I'm taking my best shot at it here. Uh, but I, I think at heart, the feminist movement is really just a humanist movement. It's just a movement amongst women to be equal in opportunity and in treatment and in pay and in all phases of things they do with men who've traditionally um, received those positions or been in charge. I I think it's interesting that people think it's triggering. I find that a lot too. Um, I know that I come from a very, very conservative background and my parents would would shudder at words like feminist because they would picture uh, who knows what um, from their days of their youth. But for me, um, for me, I don't think that that the feminist movement and girls who are feminist are looking to to overthrow anything. They're just looking to take the seats at decision-making tables that are rightfully theirs to begin with. Um, we can look all the way back to uh, the days of Adam and Eve and the first family councils, and there's probably one vote for Adam and one vote for Eve. Um, they were put there to be, to be partners and to help each other. And stepping outside of a marriage concept, you have to imagine that if Adam and Eve were the probably the mayor or president or something of their first community. I don't know how that whole politics thing works in the, in the early days, but there's no way that, that both weren't involved in decision-making. And I think that we need to look at something similar, uh, something similar today. I mean, my wife is a absolute self-described feminist and in no way does that make me feel less masculine in no way, shape or form. Does that make me feel uh, like I've lost control of anything? Um, I think that it just simply means that, she's demanding something that should have been hers right from the day that she was born, which is uh, half the ability to make any decisions uh, for us together and the full ability to make decisions that involve her and her life. I love that, Adam, and I, I don't think you're going to get any negative feedback on that, and um, that's very helpful for me. I find men 
take on that label too, feminist at times. So I've recognized that some of the people in my family that are male take on that, and some don't. And I've tried to create a family situation where um, if some in our family want to take on that label and some don't, that's fine. It's not like you're not a good um, Latter-day Saint if you have that label or don't have that label, but to give permission for people that would want to take on that label to be okay with that and understand where they're coming from versus be triggered by it. I'm reminded of one other story of Sister Eubanks since we're talking about her. Um, and you, it's cool you've had some experience with her, and I just loved her conference talk that she gave. And But in her Fair Mormon YouTube address that my wife sent me, she talked about, it really helped me, she framed up the difference between doctrine and practice. And she used an example that was helpful for me. She talked about our doctrine, and this is one of the reasons I love our restored church, is our doctrine. And she talked about the doctrine of heavenly parents, equal co-creators, and that is our doctrine. And then she talks about the practice of our doctrine sometimes doesn't match. She did do that in a critical way, but it was an instructive way, and she talked about the mission president and his wife. And we talked. she said, most people know that both of those jobs are incredibly demanding and they're both equal and needed, but we don't have vocabulary to describe her job. We call her the mission president's wife. And so our practice of our doctrine, we don't have the vocabulary that matches that. And she then talked about the temple president and his wife. We do have some vocabulary, matron, mm-hmm. and to reflect the equal and, and different in, jobs there. And so it was just kind of helpful for me is to make sure our practice matches our doctrine. So what we've talked about with councils um, and some of the things that you've shared here are examples of making sure the practice of our doctrine matches our doctrine. So that's been helpful for me. Do you want to share anything more um, about women? And I think it's great. This is part of who you are, Adam, and who, and the voice you're bringing and your firsthand experience. And and I think allies need to open doors. I've always felt the job of an ally is to, because I just have more privilege. Privilege to me are things that I'm born with that I yep. didn't earn. And I have a lot of that. <laughs> you do too. Yes, I do. And I think our job as allies is to open doors for others so that they can walk through those doors and just let them shine. In fact, I love the the song Bridge Over Troubled Water and some of those verses, your your day to shine, I'll be right behind you. I'm So it's sort of my job as an ally is just to open doors. And, and I think one of the examples of that is the text you got from this woman in this internship. She knows you're sitting right behind her um, figuratively. So you're on her team and she could reach out to you and you could just so i i like that imagery of what an ally does any just more thoughts on on what we can do as men to make sure women's voices are equally valued and and they feel equal cuz they are equal that's our doctrine <laughs> yeah and i think that living that doctrine is what's important and i think for me i would just come full circle to the the sort of joke you brought up when we first started this this discussion which was it's a little odd to have two men discussing um, discussing women's and women's equality. And I would just come back to that and I'd say my final thought would be that it's important for men to be part of this discussion because if we believe half the seats at these tables should be women, then rather than requiring the women to go take those seats, we as men with privilege who are given these seats need to be able to stand up and offer them to the women in our lives. 
Talk about being an EFY counselor. You had some interesting and unique assignments as an EFY counselor. I did, and it's one of the most important phases of my life, I think. Um, My mission was an important growth experience for me as a human to grow up and mature and gain skills and become the kind of person I hopefully am today. Uh, EFY was my chance, I feel like, to really look in the lives of other people and try to share some of my experience with them and I think for me was the first time I started to gain a little bit of a little bit of a love and a desire to serve and to change. I mean, to this day, teenagers are my very favorite people. College students are second, but teenagers are my very favorite because. And are they still Gen X or is that something? Gen below Z, that? Gen They're Z, G- yep, still okay. Z. Yeah, Gen Z. I'm the very end of millennials. Okay, so. I keep getting Gen Z wrong. There you go. Yeah, you got it. It's, I'm learning too because these people are so different than me. I found out they have a different name. But uh, dealing with these teenagers, who, by the way, these teenagers have become my students. I've had multiple of my EFY old EFY students who have now been my BYU students. That's cool. In fact, I have two of them right now in my class. That's So I think cool. that's really interesting. But um, as, as a youth, I sincerely disliked uh, EFY, not as an organization by any stretch, um, but I felt like it wasn't built for me. It was built for for youth who wanted to learn crazy line dances and flirt with girls and um, and sort of step out of their shell and meet all these people. And that wasn't who I was. Um, I was very shy. I was very introverted. I was very, I was very, um, I was nervous. I didn't have a lot of self-confidence and I was scared about looking dumb or I thought if I try to, you know, have a crush on one of these girls and they don't like me back, that's going to destroy my self-esteem. And so I really felt like the EFI was not catered for people like me. Um, I was there for the spiritual experience that took a backseat to this social atmosphere that I couldn't be a part of. And so when I came back and got recruited by by a friend to be a counselor, I thought, okay, if I'm going to be a counselor, then I am going to find the younger versions of me, find the kids who were told to go by their parents or the kids who kind of want to be there, but are getting lost in the shuffle, and I'm there for them. And so I, I did that right away. And then right from the introductions, you'd find the kids who were your EFY veterans who were here for this. I think, you know what? They're going to be okay. They're going to make some friends this week and they are going to, to really have a sensational time, even if I got sick in bed and spent the whole week out with the flu. And so I wanted to find those kids who I thought maybe aren't going to have a great time and be there for them and find out who they are, what brought them there, what struggles are they going through. And that led me to some, some incredible, incredible life-changing experiences. Um, I had a chance to work with some youth in inner city Baltimore for a week. And these students were brought um, LDS students, L- LDS, LDS, inner youth, city, ba- inner, inner city, city. Baltimore. and they were brought there by a donor, um, who wanted them to have this experience. Uh, I had, I had kids in this particular situation who were, uh, who had been in and out of a juvenile hall and, um, all sorts of reform schools and they, all sorts of problems. Um, and I think to this day, some of the most life-changing experiences happened in the five days I had a chance to spend with them. And I had to grow and to learn from who these people were and what their struggles were and what their situations were. I had one young man who had um, left Haiti um, as, a, as a young man during the Haitian earthquakes and to this day didn't know if his mother or father were alive or dead. He had never seen them. Um, he... He had been converted to the gospel when he was walking down the street. He was part of a gang, and a member of his gang got shot and killed, and he was there watching at like 12 years old. I can't even imagine witnessing that. Wow. And at like 12 years old, this had happened, and that shook him. And he went to his apartment where he lived with his, his grandmother, 
and he was a wreck and emotional and a grandmother happened to have missionaries over and wanted him to listen. And that's how he found his faith in the first place. And then of course that had been shaken through additional experiences he'd had. And then we had a chance to work together. And I had one of the most incredible opportunities of my life when he reached out to me to tell me that he had decided to um, serve a mission wow. and that he'd gotten in contact with his father who was still alive. And so he was going to be um, flying to um, to Haiti where he would be baptizing his father wow. and then going on his mission. And then I had a chance to go out and listen to his farewell talk. In Haiti. And it, or was, here? it was here in the United States. And that was one of the most incredible experiences that just came from getting to know somebody who was not EFY mold. This is not the kind of kid who is going to be line dancing and not the sort of kid who is going to be escorting people around and not the person who's going to be singing songs and the kind of experiences you expect to have. This was, this was a young man who needed something different. He needed someone to listen, needed someone to tell a story to and to adapt an experience for who he was. And I think for me, that's sort of been kind of my goal now. Um, as I, as I become a BYU professor, as I teach youth now, and as I, um, as I navigate all the roles that come my way, uh, maybe even as a podcast guest, who knows? Uh, I think my my goal is to learn to listen to what somebody needs, and to try and adapt and be the person that person needs, um, as opposed to expect that person to fit into some sort of mold that we've already cast. I'm really touched by that. That brought tears to my eyes just thinking about people on the fringes and what we can do. And I, we have this painting that I sometimes refer to. It's just the Pool of Bethesda painting by Carl Block. And I'm all, you know, these are the people we've been talking about, the people that society sort of pushed out and said weren't worthy and clean. And that's where Christ is, you know, and he is pulling the tarp over somebody that seems to even be unclean around the unclean. And he's, his hand is going to that person. And I look at that and I think, you know, what's my responsibility as a member of the church to not find the most privileged kid at EFY that fits into line dancing and connect with him or her, but to find a kid like you just talked about, or the kid at BYU, or the kid in our ward, or the kid in our family. And it may not be a kid, it may be an old person. Um, to me, that's why I'm just drawn to your message. I've been drawn to your Twitter feed. I've been drawn to your ministry, Adam, because it really resonates with me as I study the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm drawn to my responsibility to help those. I think I heard a, a, somebody on a podcast talk about theology for the margins. And it's basically you've got to have your theology work hardest for those on the margins. You've got to set up EFY so that you're structurally setting it up and like you've done here where you're thinking of those that have the hardest road and that's where you're starting first not the line dancers um, so that really resonates with me and i think it resonates with younger people that's their worldview i've got kids that are doing things in other countries right now um, because their worldview is i should be out serving people um, as part of their baptism covenants, and uh, they're doing things that I would never have considered at their age. And I just sit back and think this is this is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're acting on impressions to serve in very unique ways that I wouldn't think of. And so the things you're sharing on the podcast and your life ministry, you've got this—you're really a unique guy because you have 
this professional side of you that you could just ride your whole life on, Adam, and you don't want me to lift you up in this podcast. That's why you didn't come um, or came, but you have this professional side that you could just ride on. But you choose to have this pastoral side or this gospel of Jesus Christ side that is allowing you to have a ministry as part of what you're doing. And it's um, so it's a really, it's helpful. And I only share that with, because I, with our listeners is I think a lot of listeners want to do what you're doing and what, and a lot of listeners are doing what you're doing. And we, sometimes we need examples of hearing people of how that works to give us vision. And if we're part of a group that has a harder road to know that there's people that care about us and, and that we're needed as part of our congregations. I love the body of Christ that everybody's needed. Well, we're at the end. Do you have any final things you'd like to share with our listeners, Adam? I just have one, Richard. Um, and that would be the phrase, stay with us. If you're on the margins, um, like you talked about the, with the pool of Bethesda, is just to stay with us. Um, we're at a point where we've got a lot of things happening, a lot of change, and a lot of turmoil, and I get that. But stay with us. If you're in the LGBTQ community and you're feeling like you don't belong or feeling like you're being pushed out, stay with us. Come to my ward. Um, I, I so sincerely believe that there is a God in heaven. There is a Savior, Jesus Christ. And they love you so much. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is designed to help us grow closer. And I know we don't always fulfill that mission. I know that sometimes we may have let you down. But stay with us. Give us another chance. Come be part of the change in our culture that helps all of us grow closer to Christ. If you're a woman in that position where you feel like you have been devalued or haven't been seen of the same worth that you believe you have, stay with us. Give us another try. Because I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody. I believe a God in heaven loves everybody. And I believe there's an organization on this earth to help you grow, grow, grow closer to Christ. And then if you just give us another chance, stay with us and help us, then I think together we can all achieve that mission. I love that. Thank you, Adam Durfee, for joining us and our listeners on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>